0: welcome everyone to the farm cpa podcast presented by top producer i am paul Neifer, your host and today we have a special guest i'm going to call him a special guest we have uh jeff harrison from combat cell based
1: in washington dc how are things going jeff Great. It's a uh, it's a Friday afternoon and uh, and Congress is out and uh, gives me an opportunity to catch my breath a little bit. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy.
0: And uh, how's the weather back in D.C.? You know, I typically are talking to farmers and that's important to know the weather, but I'm not sure if they care about the weather in D.C., but let's find out uh, how the weather is in D.C. right now. Well,
1: Paul, as you know, I'm from northern Minnesota. So basically, this is like summer in Minnesota. Uh, Basically, it's uh, the humidity is gone. It's, uh, you know, 75 and sunny.
0: That's, uh, yeah, actually, I played in a a charity golf tournament yesterday, and we were about 75 sunny, but we had a fair amount of smoke overcast. You know, as I think you're probably aware, there's a quite a few fires going on in washington and oregon not like it was two years ago Uh, i remember two years ago in the summer of 2020 um, i think it was 2020 pretty sure on that we had readings you know you have the air quality readings and 100 is sort of deemed to be not very good Uh, we had days where a reading was five to six hundred and believe me that's not very good right
1: right well i tell you what we got we got clear skies here in dc today and uh, we have had this week. It's been a beautiful week.
0: Well, good. Well, we always like to start off with, with your background. Uh, for the audience uh, here on the podcast, go ahead and share uh, your background. I know it's a very, uh, just like you and I and, and Jim Wiesmeyer, We we have a little bit of age on us. So let's go ahead and uh, share our background.
1: Yeah, you bet, Paul. So I'm from uh, from Northwestern Minnesota, about uh, hour east of Fargo, and about three and a half hours northwest of the Twin Cities. Three and a half, I suppose, south of Ontario, and uh, I come from a little town of Bluffton, Minnesota, which is a town which is a, a town of 195 people, and um, uh, went to uh, undergraduate and law school at uh, Univers- University of North Dakota. It was the it was the closest and the least expensive uh, option out there for me. And uh, when I completed uh, a clerkship uh, for the federal court in St. Paul, um, the uh, then the senior center from Minnesota uh, uh, invited me to come to Washington to work for him. And um, and I did. And I, I started up earning $24,000 in 1993. And, and because I was so poor, I, uh, I had a room with uh, six other guys in a two-bedroom <laughs> apartment. Uh, so uh, I think I had a higher standard of living in college than I did, um, uh, and in my first years in Washington. But anyway, I worked uh, on Capitol Hill um, from uh, '93 until 2005, uh, both in the House and the Senate. Um, uh, the probably the most professionally satisfying was uh, as uh, counsel at the at the all-powerful House Agriculture Committee. Uh, where we wrote the 2000 crop insurance bill, the 2002 farm bill. And as you remember, Paul, because those are tough years from 1999 to, to, to 2002, we we did about $31 billion of ad hoc relief because uh, the economic situation in farm yeah. country was pretty tough. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in 2005, I, I was invited by uh, uh, the chairman that I had worked for on the committee, to join him and my and one of my roommates that uh, one of those se- those seven roommates that we had total uh, uh, he was uh, the staff director under Mr. Combest and um, and then he and Mr. Combest started their firm and they hired me and here we are uh, all these years later I guess I've been with the firm since '05.
0: Okay, okay, and what what would be your role with that firm
1: then? You know, we're an all hands on deck type of firm. we we focus solely on agriculture and rural issues. And um, you know, basically all of us have our talents uh, in the firm. Uh, I guess if I were to to lay out mine, um, you know I, the things that I like to do is I, I like to to um, to draft regulations. I like to draft statutes. Um, you know, for people to consider because, uh, obviously, you know, we're out advocating on behalf of you know, agriculture. So we want the law to be strong and good for farmers and ranchers and uh, regulations to be the same. And so that's probably what I enjoy the most, but, um, but I, you know, we do pretty much everything we engage with Capitol Hill, uh, every day, uh, we engage with the Department of Agriculture and other agencies and departments. Um, and, um, and we try to make for certain that w- when we finish and when we wrap up in the day that basically we put a, a smile on the faces of a few farmers and ranchers who we might've been able to help.
0: Now, you know, I, I think cause I, I haven't had a conversation like this before on the podcast. So this is even, especially for me and I think for the audience, it's very interesting when you say that you're dealing with Capitol Hill, so you're actually going up to let's say this one of the senate buildings or one of the house buildings and you're meeting with representatives or you're meeting with the staff just sort of give the audience an idea how that might work
1: sure well you know of course there's a little bit of a monkey wrench over the last couple of years that has sort of you know turned yeah. uh turned uh, um all that on its head but traditionally speaking um you know you're gonna when you go to Capitol Hill, whether it's just on your own or whether you're bringing you know, clients with you, farmers and ranchers with you uh, to visit with members or staff, you, um, you go to, there's uh, one of, of, of six buildings. There's three Senate buildings, there's three house buildings, and you're going to go to uh, at least one of those if you're going to visit a member or their staff at their office. Um, Maybe if they're real high ranking, uh, maybe in the congressional leadership, you're going to actually go to the Capitol itself and and meet with the majority leader, the majority whip or um, or, um, you know, something of someone of that nature, the Speaker of the House. Um, And uh, you're going to go in and visit with them and you probably get maybe, you know, I think about a 30 minute probably period of time is about all you're probably going to get. Because these members of Congress are going, you know, they're starting at an early hour in the morning and they're going late in the evening and they've got meetings every half an hour. And it's yeah. going from agriculture to health care, to defense, to you name it. They've got it. They've got to hear it all. And so um, so it's a it's an education outreach effort on the Hill. Maybe sometimes you're actually summoned to the Hill. They want They uh, have a question that they want to ask you about and get more information. So they might just actually, you know, call and say, hey, look, we need to have you come up and explain this to us. Um, And then, you know, similarly, you will go down to the Department of Ag over to the Witten Building, which is kind of where the brass is. Or you can go to the South Building, uh, Paul, which I'm sure you've been to, which is... um, I'm not really sure this is true, but they say it was, it, the floor plan is based on Leavenworth Prison. But uh, I've heard that that's not—I've heard that that's not, that's not true. But I can see how people would think that. Um, and then you know, also there's extracurricular stuff. You know, basically, you know, being politically active. You know, um, you know, helping our champions, uh, our champions of agriculture. You might uh, you might do a breakfast for a member. You might do a lunch for a member. You might do a supper for a member. And um, and you get some additional time, some actually some undivided time where you actually really get to know the person um, and they get to know you and uh, you get to go more in depth on stuff that you can't do in the space of 30 minutes on Capitol Hill.
0: Yeah. And and you're right. It's very segmented. When you do go to somewhere on Capitol Hill, you got that little 30 minute window and you're not going to go past that generally. So, yeah, now. That's right. What do you find on on the Ag side? Do you find it's easier to work with the House? Is it easier to work with the Senate or is it just depend on on what the, the particular issue is?
1: You know, I mean, they're they're very, as you know, Paul, they're very different institutions. And, um, you know, in in the House side, you know, usually if you had to describe it, um, and, you know, my colleague, Tom, says I'm I'm just just generally just poor at analogies. But if you were to think of the the house, you know, um, composing a music sheet, a music piece uh, or writing a book, you know, the chairman of the Agriculture Committee, in the case of a farm bill, is going to be the one who writes most of that book. Um, maybe he does it in close consultation with his top uh, ranking member The 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 top person in the minority party. Maybe it'll be a joint composition uh, or a joint authorship. Hopefully that would be the case in the case of a farm bill. Um, And then there might be, you know, a a few notes that uh, have been written by some member who's not a committee chairman or committee ranking member. So it's really um, there. There's a lot of uh, of authority in the chairman and in the ranking member of the of of whatever the committee you're working with, and so. You know, your emphasis or your your probably your, your time spent on the Hill is going to be frequently, you know, with those two offices. But in the Senate, if you're thinking along the same lines of composing a music piece or writing a book, it's got. A hundred authors, potentially, and um, and uh, or, you know, certainly greater than just two. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically. And so you're going to have to to make rounds uh, that are. A lot broader than maybe you might in the house um, and um, and that's going to be important because, you know, you can't just assume that if you touch base with the chairman of the ranking member that you'll have done due diligence with respect to, you know, uh, other members who might have an interest in the legislation. So that's probably an oversimplification, but it's it, 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 it's it, it maybe gives paints a little bit of a picture about how you, you how it's how each chamber is unique and 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 you're dealing with it.
0: Yeah. And
1: that that is a good analogy because it is like you say, it's sort
0: of in one case, it's the conductor on the House side. Here's the conductor and here's how it's going to work. And then over on the on on the Senate side, you got to spread it all out and you got to make sure that, uh, like you say, you got maybe not 100, but you got 60 or 70 people that you got to definitely deal with to get them to sign off on it.
1: That's right. And, you know, and I, and I don't want to lead you, you know, give you the impression that that individual House members who are not chair or ranking member don't matter. They certainly do. And they can yep. really be in and affect, you know, legislation. But it's just just as a as a general rule. That's what I laid out, I think, is a fair picture.
0: Yeah. And and how has farm policy, let's maybe go a little bit of the history of the last 30 or 40 years of farm policy how has it evolved over over that time period?
1: Well, you know, um, if you're looking at just the last thirty years, basically that's roughly Paul when I came to town. Um, so when I arrived, we were under the 1990 Act, and basically we had we had um, still a lot of vestiges of the uh, of the New Deal that were that were still part of the farm po- start of part of US farm policy. There was a lot of, you know, um, uh, supply management. Um, There were uh, set asides and so forth. And the idea behind that is just that, of course, Paul, is that basically, you know, Congress is in the business of trying to manage supply and demand in order to achieve a certain price on the market. And of course, um, as we became increasingly dependent on exports, well, that model no longer worked. We were pricing ourselves out of a market. And, um, and so remember 1996, uh, had very significant reforms and basically mm-hmm. most of the supply management features were eliminated. Um, uh, uh, price supports basically, uh, you know, they were certainly by that time, more income transfers and price supports, but, um, but they were, uh, less dependent on, on, on price and production. And uh, of course, the signature piece of the 1996 bill is, is planting flexibility, which was nearly uh, entirely, you had, you had near total planting flexibility uh, after the 96 farm bill. The trade off in that was, of course, as you remember, is that um, they provided a more finite um, uh, level of support um, that ultimately proved necessary when prices collapsed in late 1998. Um, but then, you know, 2002, uh, we did some correction. That was the first farm bill that I was, uh, I think I, I was on the committee in '96, but uh, but you know, in a more limited capacity. Yep. But in mm-hmm. 2002, as a, an attorney on the commodity title, crop insurance, uh, and other titles, um, you know, we 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 provided we added about 79 billion dollars in in baseline funding to restore the safety net in the O2 farm bill um and we've managed we, we maintained total planting flexibility in fact i think we actually improved it uh, and um and we continued sort of the process of um of continuing to make agriculture more market oriented uh whether it's in the case of peanuts or dairy or what have you uh and then in 08 was more of a i would regard it as more of a it was a full reauthorization but it it, it was a there was a lot of continuity between the 08 and 02 farm bills. There wasn't a lot of distinction. And then the 14 bill, of course, was a, was a pretty sharp uh, yeah. change. You know, they got rid of the direct payment, which had been uh, part of the 96 bill. And then they came up with PLC and ARC. And, um, and, you know, offering producers a choice was something that's very different than what producers were used to, and I'm not sure that they like it frankly, but, um, because they're having to bet on what the market
0: conditions are. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so that was 14 and then 18 was largely, you know, you know not perfectly, but, in, but largely a mirror image of the 14 farm bill, uh, not a lot of difference. Um, so, um, yeah, so there's, there's been a, you know, uh, you know, quite a, I think a sea change in terms of a, a lot of, you know, the particulars of, of farm policy. Um, and some has been, some has been really good and, and some uh, not so good, but anyway we're we're working through it. we're we're trying to make for certain that we uh, we protect farmers as we go uh, along through uh, through all these changes in market conditions and economic conditions and and policy changes.
0: Do you happen to have a little bit of a crystal ball as to, well, it's of course, we know it's going to be contingent a little bit on the election this fall as to whether we have Democrat control in the House or Republican control in the house. so let's let's have two crystal balls here. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jeff. Okay. So let's assume that the Democrats stay in control of both the House and the Senate. how do, How would you see the farm bill going in that situation?
1: it It really gets tricky on this. Um, you know, um, I would like to think that You know, that the Democrats who are in charge of the ag committees would want to preserve the bipartisan nature of the committee and work with with, work with Republicans to develop policy going forward. But do remember, Paul, that, you know, if they were to control both chambers um, and they were unified, you know, they could move a farm bill through reconciliation on a partisan basis. Now, there are problems with that. That would mean that every single program would have to be either increased or cut. And a lot of programs that don't have what are called what's called mandatory funding, meaning that the appropriators have to fund it, um, those programs would be left out entirely. Um, so there's problems with that. But the other thing is, too, is as the vice president has recently referred to, if the Democrats were to manage to gain two seats and obviate the need for the senator from West Virginia and the senator from Arizona, who have been you know, kind of the holdups. Uh, they could get rid of the filibuster and which yeah. case they could, they could pass anything they wanted to on a, on, on a simple majority uh, basis in both chambers. And there, you know, there's always a temptation, Paul, around here, um, you know, especially by the more extreme elements of e- either side to basically go it alone. Um, and, um, and I don't think that's a good thing for foreign policy, frankly, but, um, but I, I, I would like to think that they would put the better, better angels on and, um, I, I think that the, the 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 difficulty I think from a standpoint of you know farmers and ranchers is that I think that there would be a continuing uh, emphasis uh, on climate and on conservation yep. and less uh, on crop insurance and the commodity title um, and you know and my my simple response to that is and I know, I know that's not part of your question but. In order to do conservation, in order to do climate, you've got to be profitable. If you're not profitable, you can't do either of those things. So I don't think that they should lose sight of that. If the Republicans were to, to uh, run, uh, let's say they ran both chambers, um, you know, of course, they can't use reconciliation. I mean, they they did in 96. They did use it as sort of not because it had st- procedural advantages in the House, but they did it because they had a hard time getting uh democrats to come along with freedom to farm in 96 so they moved it through reconciliation along with other priorities and that sort of unified republicans and got it over the hump and then when it got into conference with the senate it moved to a regular order process and it would ultimately you know uh wound up being generally bipartisan um And I I think that that certainly could be an option, Uh, you know, if the Republicans were to take over the House and Senate is in order, you know, the House failed on two occasions now, the 14 Farm Bill and the 18 Farm Bill failed on the first try to get a bill through the chamber. Um, And, you know, they might have challenges again, this go around A reconciliation might be a means around that. But again, I do believe that ultimately it would it would have to convert to a regular order process. In order to get done i think on the republican side i think there's an interest in in focusing on crop insurance and the commodity title and strengthening those things uh, because they recognize that you know p- producers cost of production are way up margins are tight um you know I, I, my understanding is that it's going to get it's going to be like that for a couple more years and maybe get worse mm-hmm. um, as fuel prices and so forth come back up and that affects fertilizer prices and so forth um so i think the republicans are probably focused on those things and and less on you know, the conservation are certainly less than the climate. You know, certainly you know, Republicans and Democrats both are very pro conservation title, uh, but probably little divisions on the climate issue, um, at least in the manner in which they approach the issue.
0: Yeah. Now we now we know that on
1: the nutrition side, what is that 70,
0: 80 percent of the of the farm bill itself? And I've heard many people say, hey, we need to separate nutrition away from you know title one the crop insurance and so on but really that wouldn't be that effective for for the farmers would it no it
1: wouldn't uh so paul you're right it's about 85 uh it goes to nutrition um no i mean the challenge of it is is just that um you know you all have seen the 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 map of you know what the country looks like politically and you'll notice that, you know, rural areas, exurban areas tend to be more Republican and they have the farm constituency and the urban areas less and less uh, are represented by Republicans and, and more often than not represented by Democrats
0: who have,
1: you know, no, maybe few or maybe no uh, rural constituency, no agricultural constituency. So if you were to d- separate the two, you'd have a problem because basically there wouldn't be any sort of reason for People with no agriculture to be supportive, yeah. um, and um, and that would be a problem. Um, you know, and 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 also, you know, frankly, um, well, I, I could go down this road a little bit further, but I think that'd be a mistake to separate the two. I think they need to stay together, and I just think that that um, they, you know, the two sides need to uh, try to find consensus where they can, even when yeah. those, when that consensus is difficult to come by.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Now, we'll talk about crop insurance here in a little bit, but I'm just curious or want to get your views on ethanol. We know that really, you know, for the last 20 years, we've had what I call a little bit of the ethanol boom, uh, especially for corn and soybean growers. Now, you know, we're coming into a period where the economics of the auto industry is certainly rapidly shifting from internal combustion engines over to EVs, do you see eventually that mandate for ethanol production, it's going to, well, it's starting to run into that ceiling right now, you know, right. do we go to E85, can we go lower than that, or do we simply realize that, you know, you're going to have to drop that mandate? What, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's been,
1: you know, I think that that has really been a source of frustration uh, uh, to agriculture and to, you know, certainly biofuels advocates. Uh, uh, certainly, I'm one of those, um, and um, and it's frustrating because you know there's such a concentration on electric vehicles, and we can talk a lot about that, and you know the challenges with that coming ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, there, you know, biofuels is already providing benefits on, on climate and rather than sort of take advantage of those things and encourage that further uh, there's been a, a, a retrenchment it seems um, you know uh, I think that you know there there seems to be a little bit of an alliance going on between uh, oil and gas and and the more extreme elements of the environmental community in that regard um, you know so uh, and what, what's kind of frustrating too about it is, is just that, you know, there's, um, there is, um uh, there's some money that has been, for example, provided for infrastructure, um, for biofuels. But as you know, I mean, infrastructure is great and, um, and it's all well and fine, but you have to have a market in order for yep. it. To matter. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the, that's the rub, that's the challenge. And so, you know, um, you know, I don't. I don't know what the solution is, uh, other than just basically. I think that you have to have a. You know, I think. I think the issue on biofuels is sort of an intractable one in in Congress, frankly. So I think you have to have an administration that's really determined to want to help the the industry and to to grow it. Now, Regan has said, the EPA administrator has said, you know, recently he said that he wants to be in a position where he's growing the industry. So we're going to have to see if he's gonna follow through on that. I hope that he's going to but you, the 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 challenges that you um, that you cited at the beginning in your question uh, just loom large and I don't know how you grow an industry when you're looking at trying to take half of the vehicles out there and convert them to electric uh, make them electric vehicles by what two thousand and thirty and then of course yeah. California by yeah. two thousand and thirty five no gasoline powered vehicles that are new will be sold in the state if they get approved for that. And then I think last I count, I think there's 17 states that would either follow suit as a matter of statute like Virginia or um, or or have a choice to either follow California or um, or follow federal uh, guidelines, uh, which would be the case of my home state in Minnesota, where they can either they can either cut bait with California or they can and, and join the feds or they can follow follow California. I hope they have the sense to, you know, to to go the federal approach if that happens.
0: Cool. Well, certainly, my state is just like California. I think they've already come out and said, uh, yeah, 2035 were there. Now, SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, certainly, you know, the discussion right now is maybe we need an extra 30 million acres of soybeans. That may help the farmer. Maybe there's a transition from ethanol over to. Saf because I think most even environmentalists really don't necessarily want to get on an airplane that's driven by electric propulsion right now. I think uh, uh, now now maybe not, but uh, I think I certainly I'd be more comfortable having fuel on there instead of uh well, you know relying on the battery. It would take a hell of an
1: extension cord.
0: <laughs> but uh, and of course you know eventually you, you know the farm sector is going to have to realize that we're going to have a big push on. Electric tractors, electric combines, electric everything's going to be electric at some point. So, uh, right. uh but that's a story for another day.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't. You know. I really. I, I really. I, I'm. 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 I'm challenged to to imagine how they're going to be able to do all that um, and increase the dependence on electricity like that um, without having an incredible impact on energy prices. Um, and and I also just don't know the you know how they're going to uh, achieve that with basically you know i don't know solar and wind and yeah yep. i just i just i I'm, I'm, i really i, I guess i am an attorney by trade, not a not a scientist, but I'm just struggling to see how they're gonna make that all happen um, yep. um, so yeah,
0: yeah. I, I don't know how they're gonna do it either, but uh, again, that'll be a that'll be a a subject for another podcast, so yes, sir, uh, but. Uh, so now let's let's dive into crop insurance. Uh, let's go through a little bit of the history, how it's evolved, and then you know changes you think might be coming down the the pike, so to speak,
1: yeah. so just just a little bit of history on it. You know, crop insurance came about because uh, I think it was Wendell Wilkie who was running against Franklin Roosevelt. He basically had been telling farmers that he wanted, if he became president, that he would provide crop insurance for producers. And Franklin Roosevelt, a pretty clever guy, basically said, well, I'm gonna beat him to the punch. I'm gonna preempt him and and come up with with a crop insurance uh, law. And as part of the 1938 Act, um, which is still, by the way, permanent law, um, even on the commodity side, although it's suspended during the farm bill, uh, each farm bill, Uh, but as part of the 38 Act, uh, the first crop insurance program came into being. And they started out, it was kind of, um, it was written as a full statute, full crop insurance act, But really, it was focused on wheat and was sort of a pilot to see how it would work. Um, And uh, the long story short is from 1938 to 1980, you might as well just ignore those years because crop insurance was a complete and utter flop. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah.
1: And then what happened is, you know, the pillars of of, uh, the big pillars of crop insurance. First thing in 1980, um, you know, basically the Fed said this isn't working. We got to do something different and the first thing that they did is they said we're turning this over to the private sector to run rather than the federal government and so they you know basically private companies private sector agents loss adjusters and so forth Um, that's the first pillar basically that created the modern crop insurance program that i think has been an incredible success Um, the next uh, big step was in 1994 when pat Leahy and dave durenberger teamed up and did the crop insurance reform bill that tried to move producers away from ad hoc disaster and more towards crop insurance by doing premium increase, you know, premium support increases. And, um, and this was, of course, right after uh, the big flood of uh, the Mississippi River in 1993. It yep. was kind of a driving force behind this. Um, and so that was the second pillar. Uh, and then the third pillar was, I don't know if you're, if you've ever come across Art Barnaby, Dr. Art Barnaby of
0: Kansas yes, University. Yeah, Kansas, one, of the,
1: yeah. one of the legends, but he basically developed, you know, revenue insurance and, um, and convinced uh, with the help of Bob Carey, the center, the former center from Nebraska, um, convinced uh, the a majority on the, on the federal crop insurance corporation board of directors who were made up of, you know, farmers and, and so forth uh, to, uh, to go ahead and approve this, even though the administration was against it. Um, And all of a sudden you got revenue insurance. Uh, And so there's yet another pillar of, of the, of the program. And of course, you know, you know, corn and beans, for example, you've got to opt out of harvest price option nowadays. Um, So it's, it's really a, a big part of crop insurance now. And then in the 2000 ARPA, which is, you know, the bill that I was the lead attorney on in the house, um, that really substantially increased premium support for for producers. It, um, it provided premium support on the revenue side because before the lawyers at USDA said we, we can't provide premium support on anything but the yield side of the equation. And so basically, you know, that caused producers to not be able to afford revenue insurance. And so we changed that. Um, and we also tried to work to, to deal with APH issues, you know, nagging issues where a producer is able to produce a lot more than what his APH reflects, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and so we worked on issues like that and that is the other pillar to crop insurance. And now, I mean, just the, the staggering, um, I mean, just by every single measure, it's, it's, it's remarkable, you know, in terms of, uh, the acreage, the liability and, and, and protection and force, the number of crops that are covered. Um, it's extraordinary and, and I don't want to lead you to believe Paul for a minute that I'm content with where we're at because I'm not, I'm, I'm a guy who wants to continue. I, I I've all my career out here in DC, I believe that you've got to always try to work to optimize this crop insurance program. So it works pr- well as well for every grower in every region and every crop as it does for my guys in Minnesota that's yeah. what i believe in it's not just because i want to be altruistic which i do and make it for certain that farmers are happy elsewhere but it's extremely important that farmers in california or florida or wherever are are happy with the program because if they're not happy with the program we lose political support for it and my guys in minnesota would suffer um and so you know i care about my home state i care about my home state farmers And they really, it's crop insurance is so critically important to them. And so protecting it's important to me.
0: Do you see a, you know, we continue to hear chatter and I'm just going to call it chatter. I mean, it might be in a budget proposal from the president. It might be from an environmental group. It might be from somebody that's a little bit conservative on the budget side about either reducing the premium subsidy, perhaps putting in a means testing you know, AGI limit, et cetera. Um, what, you, what do you see on that? Do you see any chance of that happening? Or uh, is it a, a good chance? Is it a slim chance? I'm just curious on that.
1: P- Paul, uh, what I want to point out about that is uh, just two things before I answer your direct your question directly. The first one is, is that never assume that people are offering uh, quote unquote reforms You know, innocently Um, every single every single quote unquote reform that has been offered on crop insurance. Takes the axe against every single pillar that I just mentioned to you that built crop insurance and made it what the program is today, whether it's reducing premium support, whether it's getting revenue, getting rid of harvest price option, uh, whether it's uh, going after private sector delivery whether it's imposing AGI or or means testing or pay limits. Um, you know, the, the crazy thing about it is, and this is your territory, Paul, you, you're the, um, the accounting expert and understand that, you know, the business world eminently better than I do. But last I checked, whenever you have an insurance program, you want to make the risk pool as broad as possible in yep. order to bring in as much good risk as you can to bring down everybody's premiums. And uh, and this philosophy that these opponents of crop insurance have got is the opposite. They want to yeah. take mm-hmm. out good, really good risk in order to be punitive, in order to socially engineer the program. And they think it's going to be helpful to small producers, but it's going to be absolutely punitive to those producers because they're going to see higher premiums.
0: Yeah. Yeah. they're They're basically going to price that smaller producer or the producer that has maybe a little bit more risky you know, type crop or situation, they're just going to price them out. And at least in my opinion, I think that's your opinion too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, so just in now in direct answer to your question, you know, we have faced, uh, you know, we faced a, a very serious amendment in the 2002 Farm Bill on this front and we narrowly defeated it. Uh, then in 2008, Colin Peterson, you know, he uh, uh, really trounced a similar amendment in that Farm Bill process. And and then in 14, you know, to be honest with you, I'm getting as you alluded to earlier on, Paul, I'm getting along in the tooth. So I can't remember. <laughs> the I can't remember the 14 Farmville, uh, you know, uh, what the amendment might have been at that point in time. I don't remember it being I don't remember it being quite as uh, as problematic. Uh, and then in 18, I got to tell you, Mike Conaway and Colin Peterson just you know really worked it hard to um, to manage the amendment process. So that you know, you you know, if you want to vote for stinker amendments, you can vote for stinker amendments. But we're not going to allow you to sort of, you know, sort of cloak your amendment as some sort of modest reform when it's not. So right. We, right. you had a real choice, a real bright line choice. You could either support the farmers and the ranchers, or you can, you know, put the screws to them. And yeah. those, that was a kind of you know, that was a kind of dynamic that the 18 Farm Bill uh, uh, gave members, and it was a it was it was it was a it was a it was a, it was a solid exercise. But I have zero doubt, Paul that the opponents of you know crop insurance the opponents of of farmers and ranchers and farm policy are going to be right back at it in the 2023 farm bill and crop insurance will certainly be right in their target and you want to know why the reason why is because if you ask farmers and ranchers what their primary safety net is right now they're going to say crop insurance because yep. PLC and reference and plc and arc reference prices aren't relevant and long rates aren't relevant so the the program that's out there that is relevant is what they're going to go after
0: yeah, I, I have several people, they'll ask me throughout the year, uh, you know, what's the PLC payment going to be this year? What's the ARC payment going to be this year? And I'm like, eh, somewhere between none and none. You know, yeah, not, right now, certainly on AR, there's certain crops. Yes. You know, and and might be peanuts or something else where yeah. it seems like every year there's a payment. But, uh, you know, when you're dealing with the with the corn, the soybean, the wheat grower uh, with the price where it's at right now. There's nothing there, but again, as you said, the margin is certainly shrinking with the increase in fertilizer and and labor and fuel and everything else. So do you see, now, on a personal note, I, I do have ground in Iowa and Missouri, and I actually have margin insurance that I think I'm going to collect on this year. Not sure, but I think there's a good chance. Do you see more of a trend toward hedging in that or locking in that margin on crop insurance versus just the, simply the revenue side?
1: Yeah, so, you know, there is, as you probably have heard, you know, you have Representative Thompson, the ranking rem- member on the yep. House Ag Committee, you know, potentially the chairman of the Republicans were to rest control of the House. You know, he has spoken frequently about margin uh, insurance, margin coverage insurance. Now, you know, I, I, this is what I gather, and I don't want to be, I, I appreciate anybody who goes through The 508 H private sector development process in order to make for certain that farmers get the kind of coverage that they need, and I commend them for doing that. Um, But, you know, for whatever reason, and you, since you've bought some of it, you can maybe be, you could probably illuminate this a little bit for us, but, uh, but for whatever reason, it's not caught on this current policy has not caught on. And so I don't necessarily see it as being. At least in its current form, a very viable option that Congress would want, you know, to turn to in order to help farmers deal with margin. I almost think that that th- that Congress would be more apt to want to take the PLC program and ARC program and put in some sort of margin element to it. Yeah, a uh, margin component to it. Um, that seems to be more likely, unless you know, basically, uh, you know, they have some assurances that margin is going to work like it's supposed to because remember congress spent you know um back in 14 you know when they were moving away from title one from the commodity title and more towards crop insurance congress spent a ton of money on supplemental coverage option and it really for many years it just simply it just it just it it was it just wasn't used yeah uh, at least not subscribe to very much now that's changing a little bit as you know but but um i don't think congress wants to spend a ton of money and then not get any bang for its buck so i don't yeah. think they're going to want to you know uh say okay we're going to put everybody into a into a really inexpensive you know we'll, we'll provide more support for margin coverage and then have it not work for producers or have them not um subscribe to that policy so i think they're going to have to make sure that whatever they do in that front is going to be is going to be an effective safety net
0: yeah i I think part of it even speaking as a consumer of margin protection policies is it's very easy to understand the revenue side it's just a little more difficult to understand the cost side you know what so how did how are they calculating this uh you know it's area and it's diesel and it's interest and then they got this fixed thing so it's it's too opaque you know it's hard to know i call it the black box you know there's some black box and they're going to spit out a number and they're going to say here's where you're going to get paid whereas on revenue protection i can calculate exactly what that number should be so i, I think that's been part of the issue
1: yeah yeah so they've got to work on you you know obviously i would prefer if i had my druthers i would definitely prefer to use crop insurance whenever it's possible, whenever it's whenever to, to the maximum extent practical, because you get to tailor it to your farm. You don't yep. have to deal with a lot of nonsense in terms of program limitations that you have to deal with under, under the commodity title. Um, you know, uh, you you get to, you know, it just seems like there's just a lot more certainty to it. But again, yeah. that's predicated on a policy being out there that can be, you know, universally subscribed to like we're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It, it's like say I'm probably gonna sign up for it again this year, possibly. I, I I think the deadline's the end of the month, so I'll have to make up my mind pretty quickly here. So, well, I'd but, love to. Uh, hear,
1: I'd love to get your feedback, Paul, in terms of areas where you think that that the program could be or the policy could be improved, where you know it might uh, gain the kind of subscription that we're just talking about.
0: Well, I'll, I'll I'll put my thinking hat on. Now that I got some spare time, yesterday was September fifteenth, as we're taping this. I got my corporations, I got my partnerships or my S corps and partnerships done. Now I got one more deadline, and I'm actually in good shape on that. So uh, I I'll, I'll have a little more time here. But uh, what what in the next farm bill? Do you think it's really going to be a continuation of the eighteen farm bill, or do you think uh, major changes are coming, or is it still a little too soon to know you know
1: paul i think that if it's a mere continuation of the 18 farm bill i don't think that the risks are worth the reward of taking a bill that's a flatline budget and dragging it across the floor and subjecting it to a ton of bad amendments Um, personally i mean i think that in order for there to be a full reauthorization of the farm bill there's got to be something in it for producers uh, that they can say yes, we're going to work for this, and we're going to get this thing done, and it's worth the risk of a reauthorization. Um, because right now, if you were to haul a flatline farm bill across the House and Senate floor, you know I think you're going to you're going to have a hard time getting farmers excited about you know no PLC, no ARC, no yeah. loan support. I mean, basically, and and crop insurance is already permanent law, so that's not going to change no matter what. So I think that you know, and you know, it's it, so it's not just you know, obviously, it's not just to get a farm bill through, but the point of it all is, um, you know, we we do need a better safety net for our producers. And the fact that that we've had to do the CFAP programs and the and the MFP programs and the um, and the WIP plus program and ERP, it's yeah, all evidence yeah. of that, you know, it's, yeah. it's evidence that basically, you know, that, you know, we, we sort of, you know, in the 14 farm bill, um, you know, $23 billion was cut out of agriculture. Um, and that, that cut, uh, continued to be reflected in the 18 bill and, you know, maybe Congress, you know, it seems to me that they did, they maybe, you know, cut twice and measured once and maybe they need to revisit that. I think they do. So,
0: yeah, yeah, totally agree. Well, Jeff, this has been a, a great session on both the history and where it might be going with the. The farm programs and crop insurance. Uh, I think we'll we'll try to have a, another podcast maybe later on on a couple other subjects if that's good for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Paul. I'm I'm. Uh, I'll say it right here during this recording. I'm honored that you'd ask me to be on this thing. I I I, uh, I know that you've got a legendary reputation in the uh, tax and accounting world, and so I'm privileged to to just to get a chance to visit with you.
0: And so for the podcast audience now, I have to pay. Jeff, a hundred bucks after this done. so you no, know, just just kidding on that. But uh, again, Jeff, thank you very much. actually, for I, I think because you your firm does provide a sort of a weekly newsletter. is Is that something if a podcast listener is interested in in getting a copy of, it, is that something that is available? I, 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 we could probably swing that, okay, okay. or, um, how about some contact information for, for the audience out there, if that's something that sure. you are, you're willing to share with them?
1: Of course. Yes. Uh, Jeff Harrison is my name. And uh, my email is Jeff at Combest hyphen dot com. So um, and if you have any questions about that, because I know that that's uh, probably not uh, at least when I'm visiting with people on the telephone, I give myself uh, my email. It's not always easy for them to follow that along but paul can connect you with me yeah. and uh, my my number is 202-215-6645
0: perfect perfect again jeff thank you very much for taking time out of your day to to be on the podcast and this is the farm cpa podcast presented by top producer and i'm paul Neifer your host signing off
1: Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness.